Hi, I'm Valerie Schmidt, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture this morning. It is found on page 66 in the Pew Bibles, and it is Exodus 31, 1 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Amen. Thank you, Valerie. The version of the Bible that we most often preach from, the English Standard Version, has something like over a thousand chapters, over 30,000 verses, and over 750, 750,000 words. It's a lot of words. Speaking of all of these, God tells us through the Apostle Paul, quote, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, mark this, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I believe that. I've tasted and seen it. Our church has too. We want you to believe that every word is there for your every good. But to say that every word is there for your every good, is not to say it's immediately clear the way in which every word is there for your every good. For example, Pastor Ben last week preached from six chapters in Exodus, chapters that might be in your Bibles as they are in many Bibles, even of committed Christians from what we might call the crispy pages. That is, those pages in our Bible that are less often paid attention to and thus crispy, and especially in a book like Exodus, an epic book like Exodus, where a young sister floats her baby down, her baby brother down a river in a basket, and where a bush does not burn, and where God, some 80 years later, takes that same baby boy, now a man, and uses him to turn the river into blood. And where Nine more plagues free slaves from the most powerful man in the world and where the parting of the sea and the closing of the Red Sea saves some people and kills others. In a book like that, it's not a surprise that these six chapters, indeed really the most, the, the back half of the book of Exodus, remain, shall we say, crispy. 
But God has put every word there for our every good. Even passages that give instructions about how to build stuff we no longer have to build. Just might take us a minute to figure out the way. So let's begin and ask the Lord for help. That he would show us how these passages are here for our good. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us this morning see the way in which commands given some three and a half thousand years ago and the promise embedded with them are there even now for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Without a doubt, my least favorite week of graduate school was not final exam week, but what we might call syllabus week, also known as the first week of classes. You show up for class, and the professor hands out this white sheet of paper, the syllabus, and on that sheet of paper, it has everything that has to be done in the semester, the papers you have to write, the books you have to read, the tests you have to take, the class projects that must be constructed, and sometimes the passages, at least in seminary, pastor school, the passages you must translate. Then you go to the next class, and the same thing happens again. The papers, the tests, the quizzes, the exams, the books, the projects, and so on and so forth. You do this three or four times, sometimes even five times in one week, And with all the the work I had in my engineering job during seminary, with all the volunteer work I was doing at my church during seminary, with all the seminary work I did during seminary, each of the ten times I suffered through syllabus week, without exception, I felt utterly undone and overwhelmed at the commands upon me. This morning, we'll eventually get to our text of Scripture, I promise. Ordinarily, we get to our text of Scripture near the beginning because you can't preach a passage of Scripture without preaching the passage of Scripture. But this morning, instead, I want to meander towards the passage that was read a few moments ago by Valerie to appreciate the provision of God in Exodus 31. We need to experience syllabus week, so to speak. Surely the people who first received these commands from God would have felt, perhaps as you often feel, utterly overwhelmed at the commands that the Lord does put upon us. But if we linger here, if we linger here for a bit, at the end we'll see that God has more than provided for us the ability to do what he commands from us. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to chapter 25. I want to, this is on page 61 of the, the Bible in the pews. I don't know which page it would be on yours, but, but just leave that open throughout this morning. We're looking at a number of passages. I want to read the first seven verses from chapter 25. These were part of what Ben preached last week. They begin this way. This is about collecting the materials for all this stuff. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, 
You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you will receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and finally twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, and for the ephod for the breast piece. And so begins six chapters we could summarize as all the stuff God commands them to build. This chapter begins collecting the raw materials for all the stuff they're commanded to build. And if you let your eyes just fall, even if you were able to sit there and just turn the pages, what you would see are chapter headings. These are added later, but they're helpful to us to see what kind of chunks of Scripture are talking about in each chunk. We would see headings such as the Ark of the Covenant, the table for the bread, the golden lampstand, the tabernacle, the bronze altar, the court of the tabernacle, oil for the lamp, the priest's garments, the altar for incense, the bronze basin, and the anointing oil for incense. Again, we could summarize chapters 25 through 30 as all the stuff God commands the people to build for proper worship for the God who is who he is. It's a big syllabus. A group project at the end of the semester is not going to get done with one all-nighter. It's not going to happen. I'll read more, starting with the Ark of the Covenant because it's probably the most familiar to us because it shows up in movies and cultural references. But here are the instructions from chapter 25, verses 10 through 12 about the ark. Note how specific they are. Chapter 25, 10 to 12. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. And on it goes. So specific. Not balsa wood or pine wood or maple wood or cherry wood, but acacia wood. A cubit and... Was about, a cubit was about 18 inches. We don't use cubits, but that's what they used. And its length was not to be two cubits or three cubits, but two and a half. And it's overlaid with pure gold, not imperfect gold. And there are not four rings or five rings, excuse me, not three, but, I said that wrong, not three or five, but four are the number of rings. So specific, right? And so it is throughout these chapters. Let me skip ahead to the Chapter 26, which is a whole chapter devoted to the tabernacle, which is sort of this portable temple tent that the people of God used for a good many years. I'll read just one verse. Chapter 26, verse 36. 26, 36. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered, embroidered with needlework. And that's it. Use blue and purple and scarlet yarns, God commands. And then take the yarn and make it fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. Now just consider for a moment the enormity of what God is commanding in just that one verse. You don't get yarn from Hobby Lobby. You must raise sheep and goats and then shear the sheep and goats and then make yarn. And you 
have to then, I don't know, get berries, I suppose, that are both blue, purple, and scarlet, and then you squash the berries, and then you make the yarn, at which point you only have the raw materials. You haven't made anything yet. And so God commands chapter after chapter. One pastor likened these descriptions to a divine open house. I guess we could say that that's the case. Perhaps we could even say it's more like a celebrity who's going to kind of on this television show episode, going to bring you through her $18 million mansion room by room. I make that comparison because everything described here seems so lavish and so beautiful, especially for nomadic people. Just come out of slavery. Consider Exodus chapter 28. It's a chapter devoted to the priest's garments, the uniforms that the priests would wear. Here we read in Exodus chapter 28 verse 2, You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and then quote, for glory and for beauty. The purpose was not merely function. It's not merely function for glory, for beauty. It's not merely like, okay, make a robe out of Gore-Tex so it'll be warm when it's cold or make it out of Nike dry fit cloth, right? So it's cool when it's hot. Functional. Make it for beauty and for glory. The best materials ranged in the most beautiful of ways. Why? So people would know when they see the people of God that God is not just functional. He's beautiful. As we sang, he's an artist and a potter. That's awesome, right? It's also very serious, too. Last week, Pastor Ben showed us a picture of the priest's robes or at least what we imagine them to have looked like. And at the bottom, there was these little bells that they're commanded to put on the robe. And these bells were to make sound so that when a priest goes in one time a year to the inner part of that tabernacle, the holy place, he, quote, those bells make a sound that, quote, he does not die, Exodus 28, 35. Now, it's not said directly, but the implication seems to be that if you make lousy bells, the priest might die. That's serious. And so is this. The incense for the altar that's described in chapter 30, it was so holy and so set apart that if you made that special same perfume with the exact recipe, so to speak, for personal use, you were to be cut off from the people of God. It was just for God. Super serious, right? Imagine it's your first day as an electrician. And the journeyman walks you through the job site, brings you up to the big electrical panel and starts showing you how to connect wires and disconnect wires and makes quick work of all of that. And you stand there nodding your head. And then he looks at you and says, oh, make sure that you check the flux capacitor before you start connecting wires, because if you don't, you might die. You go, okay. (laughs) You nod your head that you understand, but you don't really understand. And then for the next seven hours, he commands you something similar a dozen times. Don't do this or you'll die. And you just go, okay. Scary, right? And not only is it serious and scary work, but the building of all the stuff that God commands. um, But what if you don't know how to do the stuff that God commands? Right? What if you can't do embroidery with needlework or you don't know how to overlay acacia wood with gold? What if you're not able to? This spring, I've been helping with a a local school and their track and field team, and I'll often describe for the distance runners the workout in the earshot of the sprinters and throwers. 
And as I do describe the distance runner's workout, I will invariably see on the faces of these sprinters and throwers this look of panic. They start clutching their hearts and dry heaving, and we haven't done anything yet. Worried that I'm going to command them to do the workout that they could never do. I'll switch the genre here for a moment. What if I commanded us to tune a piano? Now, some of you could do that. But most of us couldn't tell if a piano was out of tune, at least if it was only slightly out of tune, let alone tune it. The joke gets made around here that even though I'm Pastor Ben's boss who's away this weekend, uh, he's never going to let me in the choir. You can hand me that sheet music, but I don't know what it means. There's so many squiggly lines on it. could belabor this longer, but you see where I'm going. Surely the people who first received these commands from God would have felt, as perhaps you often feel, utterly undone and overwhelmed at the commands that the Lord is putting upon you. And this is the larger point I want to make here at the beginning of the sermon. That while you and I are not the people of God who are commanded to build the stuff that they were commanded to build in Exodus, we are In Christ, the people of God who are commanded to do stuff. God commands Christians, those he has redeemed from the house of slavery, to sin, to walk in obedience, representing his truth, displaying his beauty. In the New Testament, we could group some of the commands that are commanded of us under the banner of one to another's. There are these commands that use that phrase in the scriptures that Christians are to do with and for one another. And there are many, many of these verses, dozens of them. Let me read just a few of them to you. Jesus told his disciples, quote, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. A commandment, not a suggestion. It's not hard. Just love people the way Jesus loves us, right? Forgiving all their trespasses. It's easy. Consider consider some of the commands given throughout Romans. Romans chapter 12, live in harmony with one another. Chapter 15, welcome one another. Chapter 16, very end of the book, as occurs several times at the end of books, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, after church, don't come up and greet me with a holy kiss or unholy kiss, like any kind of kiss, all right? Um, not just because of COVID. <laughs> Culturally, we don't do kiss greetings, but, but what God is commanding here is that as we gather as the people of God, we would gather in local gatherings with such joy in our hearts that we could do what we do in our culture in socially appropriate ways, show signs of affection to our brothers and sisters in Christ because we have that affection in our hearts. Maybe not with kisses, affectionate handshakes, affectionate head nods. (laughs) Sup, right? But the point is that the joy would be there, that when we gather, because we should gather, we would be happy to gather. In Galatians, God commands us that we bear one another's burdens. In Ephesians, we're commanded to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In Philippians, we're commanded to do nothing. Do nothing, Paul writes, out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Is that what you're doing right now as we gather? Looking around, considering everyone else here is more significant than me. 
And Thessalonians were commanded to encourage one another and build one another up. Again, a command, not a suggestion. James write, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, he writes, the judge is standing at the door. Serious, right? Peter writes, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And on and on, the commands for serving others and the worshiping of the God who is who he is land upon us. And it's possible because of the way these commands, they stack upon us. It could feel as though that these commands, it could be easy to forget that these commands are there for our good. It could feel that they are bad for us, perhaps. But what I want to remind you is that you want to live in a world where people obey these one to another's. I want to pastor a church where people treat me and all of us treat each other like this. These commands are not bad and burdensome, yet surely the people who first receive them would have felt, as perhaps you feel at times, utterly undone and overwhelmed at what the Lord commands from us. That is, that is, unless God also provides what he commands, which he does. I said at the beginning that we ordinarily get to our passage of Scripture at the beginning of the sermon because that's how you preach. You, you, you have to preach a passage to preach a passage. But this morning, I wanted to meander towards Exodus 31 because I felt we would better appreciate the Lord's provision in Exodus 31 if we had first experienced syllabus week, as it were. With all that context in mind, look with me again at Exodus 31. I'll read exactly what Valerie read moments ago. Exodus 31, verses 1 to 11. Exodus 31, verses 1 to 11. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Beziel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamak, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the tent and its utensils, excuse me, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils and all the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron and the priests and all the garments for his sons for the service as of the priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. These two men seem to have the spiritual gift of arts and crafts. Artistic designs, we read. To work, quote, in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving wood. To work in every craft. The church should excel in training artisans. When your children come home with construction paper, with colored macaroni glued to it, right? We're training artisans. The people of God should excel at decorating filmmaking and novel writing and graphic design and music playing and more and more because the God who is true is also beautiful. 
But being good at a craft takes time. And time requires patience we don't often have. The author J.K. J.K. Excuse me, J.K. Said they're wrong. J.K. Chesterton once said, "You can't grow a beard in the moment of passion. <laughs> you have to be willing." in a sense, to be bad at sculpting for a while before you can be good at sculpting. You have to be bad or at least okay-ish at preaching for a while before you can be good at preaching. And now I'd love to do this long rant at this moment about how God values the arts and how Christians often undervalue the arts, but that would take us away from the main thing we need to see in this passage. There's another direction we could go. This passage curbs our lust for Human hero leaders. This passage curbs our lust for human hero leaders. When you think of the book of Exodus, you think, of course, of Moses. Think of Moses up here, and then perhaps Aaron, and then Miriam, and then maybe young Joshua and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who has a couple cameos that are significant. But we should also be thinking of how awesome Beziel is. But no, Beziel can't do anything unless God's spirit comes upon him. That's what it says explicitly. And this insight helps us actually read Moses better. Yes, Moses holds the staff. Moses rebukes Pharaoh. Moses leads the people out. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and so on. But for as great as Moses is, he can't make anything in chapters 25 through 31. And if we give Exodus a better reading, we see Moses is not really the man. Moses, as a baby, needs to be saved by women. His mom, his sister, Pharaoh's daughter. And when Moses grows up and acts violently, he flees away scared. When God commands Moses to speak to Pharaoh, Moses says he can't. When Moses goes back to Egypt, he almost dies, and his wife has to save him from the Lord's wrath. This is very squirrely and obscure part of chapter 4 that we didn't even touch because it's so bizarre. But it happened. When in Egypt, Aaron often has to speak for Moses. Later, in a certain battle, Moses needs his hands held up by others as he prays for God's people in a battle. During that same season, Moses' father-in-law Jethro has to rebuke Moses because Moses is trying to do everything. He's trying to be the guy. Church, the best pastors, the best leaders, the best parents, the best professors, the best Christians are those who don't believe they can do everything. The best Christians, the best pastors, the best parents, the best leaders are those who know that Jesus can. And in this way, I'd love to go on an even longer rant about our love. Perhaps we would use the word lust for human leaders and how, especially in the West, it just keeps tripping us up over and over and over again. But that rant would take us away from the main thing you need to see in this passage, namely God. Look at Exodus 31 again. Verse 2, 3, and 6. Four times, I, 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 I. I have called by name. I have filled with the Spirit of God. Down in verse 6. I have appointed. I have given. I, 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 I. God himself provides the people of God what he commands of the people of God. Praise God for that. 
Were this not the case, we would be utterly undone. And he doesn't just provide barely enough as though they're going to eke by. God provides more than enough. In Exodus 35, we read about these skilled women who are going to do all the embroidery and a whole bunch of other things and build the things that God commands to be built. And then on into chapter six, chapter 36, God really covers very similar ground to chapter 31. We read more about these two guys, Beziel and Oholiab. It's great that God gives them the ability to make the stuff. These men, these women. But they need the stuff right? They need the raw materials, which is why chapter 35 starts with this call for a contribution to be made. And then the chapter 36 sort of as this book into this section, what we read is that Moses actually has to stop the people from bringing stuff because they bring too much stuff. Exodus 36 verse 7, Moses has to restrain them. We read, so the people of God were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do the work, and then these two words, and more. Can you imagine a fundraising campaign that's going so well in the church or a political campaign where they just go, you know, we've got enough. We'll just take the foot off the brake. Like privately, they're going, this is going really well. Just let's just keep telling people we still need their money, right? Like that's how that goes. Our church annual budget is 650000 or so dollars a year. And our church is extremely generous. And I would love to be able to tell you here on May 1st that we have all the money we need for the rest of the year, but we don't. I'd love to be able to say the nursery has all the people, all the helpers we need, but we don't. In fact, we printed in the bulletin this week a little sheet of paper <laughs> of all the places we need people to serve these days. And now, if this were a commercial, we, I'd go through all of them. It's not a commercial. This is a preaching about the ability of God to provide. And this theme here in Exodus makes me think of a phrase in one of Paul's letters, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Steph Curry, a basketball player, writes that on his shoes. He's become famous for that and for being a very good basketball player. And I paraphrase that line from Paul's letter for the title of the sermon, not I can do all things, but we can do all things through through Christ who strengthens us. Church, perhaps right now, God, what God commands of you feels overwhelming. I can tell you that very often being a husband and a dad and a pastor and honoring God and all those things, plus all the other things that seem to show up in my life when I say yes, can feel overwhelming. Perhaps you or have a friend or a pastor that's betrayed you and you wonder, Can I carry on in the faith when the leaders, they just seem so fickle? Perhaps it's a difficult season for you to come to church with a warm heart towards your brothers and sisters. Perhaps you wonder if your sins, which seem so wayward, will keep you from God. I read of that command, which I read earlier from Thessalonians, encourage one another and build one another up. I read that command and I think, I think of one of our longtime members who can't come to church because she's dying. Now you would think, I read that command, and what I think, encourage one another. You would think, as the pastor of this church, one of the pastors and the lead pastor, I I, I should read that and feel like, okay, that's what I've got to do for her. And I do feel like that. But when I visit Jim and Shelby, she builds me up. They build me up. Even though she can no longer speak with her words, 
She has to write on a dry erase pad right now. She builds me up. And when I see that, I see Exodus 31. I see Jesus. I see the God who is providing for her everything that God commands of her. Finish well. And seeing Jesus in her is the way that Jesus puts more of himself in me. This is why even the crispy parts of Exodus are so good. This is why every word from God is breathed out for our every good. We are commanded in Exodus to have no other gods before God, the real God, right? We talked about that for a good many weeks in the Ten Commandment portion of our study in the book of Exodus. Now here, buried in Exodus 31, we see the way we are so much better in having the real Jesus as our master than any other Pharaoh. Pharaoh commands brick-making without straw. But what Jesus commands, he gives. To paraphrase a line from a famous African Christian named Augustine, God, he prayed, command what what you will, but give what you command. So here at this point in the sermon, we must go to the gospel because that's where we've been going all along. If this passage in Exodus is about God providing what he commands, And if in a greater way, the whole Bible is telling the story of the God providing what he commands, then how can Christians not revel in the cross of Jesus Christ? How can we not see the cross of Jesus Christ as the place where we are most clearly confronted with our need and our inability, and yet simultaneously most gladly supplied? with God's provision, our need for forgiveness met with God's provision for forgiveness. And anyone can get in on this. There's more forgiveness and more provision in the heart of Jesus for you than you've yet experienced. When we talk of the cross of Christ, we can do so in the words of Exodus 36. We can talk of Christ's death and provision as that which far exceeds our need. If you don't know God's provision in Jesus yet, which is some of you, and if you don't yet know the provision of Jesus as fully as you should, which is all of us, we can ask God for it. He loves, Jesus loves to draw near to those who want to be near to him. Let me close in prayer and invite the worship team to lead us in song. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, remind us, even when we doubt it, that your every word is for our every good. Lord, I pray that our hearts and how needy they are and how many rivals there are that compete for the affections of our heart would find their satisfaction in you. And that what you command, you would give. We praise your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen.